music has always been a big piece of my life. I have always loved music. Um, it's just been a big piece of my life. And I have always had a pretty eclectic um, interest in music. And uh, my bands have ranged in, in quite a, a span. Uh, I love bands like The Monkees. Anybody even know who The Monkees are? Uh, U2, John Philip Sousa. Any band nerds in here? Any, anybody? Yeah? All right, yeah. She's at Laura. Um, I love musicals. My Fair Lady is probably my favorite musical. If you haven't seen it, you are missing out. You need to go rent that. Uh, Need to Breathe is another favorite band of mine. Ariana Grande, you know. All right. Some Grande fans back there. I think it was Need to Breathe they were rooting for. But. Um, so today I was asked to speak um, about continuing our series on the Psalms, and it's titled The Soundtrack of Our Life. And so uh, we were encouraged for each one of us to come up with a few songs that uh, – either told something about our life or that we just really loved. And so I kind of did a mixture of those. The first song um, is God's music. I fully believe um, that God is in and working through the best music there is out there, and that's country music. I'm sure you guys all agree with me in that. So um, so in, in God's music, um, one of my favorite songs is by a band called Lone Star, and it's my front porch looking in. It's this great song. We're going to play a little of it. Um, but it reminds me of Janet and I's, uh, like, American dream, how we wanted to have a farm, and we wanted to, um, you know, have kids, and be able to run through the, you know, fields together with our children, and all of this, um, so it kind of reminds me of that, so take a listen to one of my favorite songs. Come on, that's good, right? You guys are like, oh, that's sweet, right? Yeah. Thank you, country fans. All right. So for those of you who aren't into country, another big part of my life, I, uh, in high school and middle school and stuff, was involved in the arts and even in college, played in the band. Um, so musicals are a big part. I just love the arts, and so musicals are really special to me. And recently, this new musical has hit Broadway by Storm, and it's called Hamilton. So I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but it is awesome. Um, and one of the great songs uh, in Hamilton is My Shot. So take a listen to a little bit of this song. This is an awesome song. So if you guys haven't heard Hamilton, you can look up on YouTube and you can hear all the awesome songs. It's about like Revolutionary War times. Incredible, awesome. Uh, lastly, um, one of my favorite songs that really had a big impact on me. Um, about two years ago, Janet and I were wrestling with whether or not we should do this whole church planting thing and move uh, to a city and start a new church. And we were really wrestling with that with God and trying to decide if that's really what we were being called into. And in the midst of that time, I uh, found myself at a conference with over a thousand teenagers, and we were worshiping to this song um, by a band named Hillsong, and it's this song called Scandal of Grace. As we were worshiping my emotional song, I just, I literally broke down and started weeping, and I, I just couldn't uh, contain my emotions because I, I, in that moment, 
I, I understood that I, I was prepared and I was ready to uh, give control back to God and, uh, and do what he was calling us into. So have a listen to Scandal of Grace. Music has always uh, been an emotional thing for me, so I don't know if you guys experience that too. I think many people do experience emotion through music. Um, music uh, calms me down sometimes. Sometimes it excites me or gets me amped up. Like in high school when I used to play football, like the locker room was always bumping to something. Um, you know, we use music for all sorts of things. Music helps us identify sorrow deep within, a, with deep within us or it uh, shows us pride when we... Um, see our kids playing it, but music really does have uh, an impact on our lives. I, I love to crank up the radio as I'm cruising through the streets of downtown Silver Spring in my awesome minivan, just bumping out to the tunes, you know, usually country. Um, and uh, my children uh, have grown up, we love sharing music with our kids, so our boys have grown up being sung to, they've grown up listening to the radio, uh, watching musicals. Um, singing along with us. Uh, we've taught them to sing prayers. Um, our boys even went to a music camp this week um, to learn more about music. So music is really something that's important to us that we want to pass on to our kids because I believe that music is a great way to express your feelings, and it's a great way to do that. So I want my boys to be able to have that ability. I believe that God gifted us with music. I, I think God gave us melodies, harmonies, symphonies, concertos, so that we could express ourselves. Uh, when words just weren't enough, God gave us those things. I, I want you to think of a tough time that you had in your life. Maybe, um, you know, something was going on in your life that was really rough, and people kept asking you what's going on. You just, you didn't know how to express it. You, you didn't know how to use words to tell them about it. But then you turn on the radio, and a song is on, and you're just instantly like, oh, all right, I'm not alone. Like, you feel validated that someone else gets you. And music has this ability um, to do that. Whether it's Aerosmith, Katy Perry, or Elvis, music speaks for us. Now God gave us in the scriptures, uh, the biggest book in the Bible is the book of Psalms. And uh, it's right in the middle of your Bible, if you were to crack it open in the middle. And Psalms is for moments like this. They, they have been sung, recited, uh, read aloud over centuries by God's people as they express themselves and as they work out emotion in their life. This series we've been doing is called uh, Psalms, Soundtrack of Your Life, and today uh, we get to dive into um, the heaviest of psalms, which are the psalms of lament. Um, they're psalms that are very important, um, but they're also heavy. A lament is simply a passionate expression of grief or sorrow brought on by mourning or regret. Now, this is deeper than like when the Nats lose, which rarely happens. Um, it's deeper than when your political candidate isn't like going off the charts in the polls. It's a deeper sorrow than that, something that really is locked in inside of you and it's hard to express. The Psalms of Lament are songs that follow the emotional carnage and the difficult stream of thought of someone who is in the midst of suffering a difficult loss. That's what a Psalm of Lament is. It's, it's in a time when all is not right in the world, when it appears that 
everyone else has abandoned you and maybe even God has gone on vacation and you really just are in this tough, tough moment. And the psalms of lament in those times become our voice. Many of the psalms throughout scripture are written from a place of thankfulness or a place of abundance. God has given me so much. We have so much to be thankful for. But more psalms are written about lament than any other type of psalm. More psalms are written about tough, deep sorrow, anguish, angst than anything else. Um, And that should tell us something about what God wants to do in our lives, how he wants to work in those times. These are the Psalms of Lament. There's an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann. He's a very intelligent man, very tough to read because it's very heavy and deep. Everything you read, you just feel like, oh, wow, that was deep. He breaks down the Psalms into three different categories. He says that the Psalms are either a Psalm of orientation, which is all is right in the world. God is on his throne. Everything's great. Life is good. Psalms of orientation. Then there's Psalms of disorientation. That's when the world gets flipped upside down. That's when things, when justice isn't being seen. That's when God seems to be gone and nowhere to be found. Psalms of disorientation. And then the last category of psalm is a psalm of reorientation. This is the aha moment, right? Oh, now I see what God was doing. Now I get it now. And now I can move forward having learned in this time. Of those three types of psalms, today the one we're talking about is psalms of disorientation. These are psalms of lament. Think about a time when you were disoriented. A time maybe like in this heat you stood up and you, oh, whoa, right? If you were outside on these 100 degree, 100 degree days, maybe you stood up and you just kind of were blurry and couldn't see around. That's a little bit of disorientation. When I was a kid, my brothers and I used to play this game uh, where we would go to the beach and we would lay in the surf. We'd lay face down in the surf and we would look up at our parents sitting on the, you know, on their lawn chairs and we'd let the waves smash us, right? It was a great game. It was so much fun. Um, and, and as you're like flipping and tumbling in the water with a mouthful of sand being cut by shells and like it's really disorient and you don't know which way is up. And if the waves are big enough, y- you kind of get in a panicky mode and you don't know you're disoriented. It's not a place that you would want to stay. I wouldn't want to like hang out under the water and just let this happen for too long. Eventually, we would go out and get some rest. Disorientation is not a a place that you want to stay. Psalm 22, I believe, is one of the most raw and powerful psalms of disorientation or lament. I want you guys to go ahead and turn there in the Bibles next to you. Um, You can turn to page 381. We'll be in the bottom right corner on page 381 on the bottom right corner. Um, We're going to start in Psalm 22, and we'll just start with that first verse. This is a psalm that was written by King David. It's the same David of David and Bathsheba, the same David of David and Goliath. Uh, He wrote this psalm, but it's a prophetic psalm, which means that he was writing it about the person of Jesus Christ, about the Messiah who would come much longer after David was dead. And so this prophetic psalm is actually called the crucifixion psalm, and you'll see why as we read more. Uh, into the psalm. So Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my words of groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and you are silent. Ooh. Maybe um, you've heard these words in a different 
uh, passage. So if you look, uh, you guys don't have to turn there. I'll go ahead and read it for you. It's in Mark chapter 15 as uh, Mark describes in his gospel the story of Jesus. And when he describes Jesus on the cross, he uses these words in Mark 15. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness is disorienting. Pain is disorienting. Being alone somewhere and not crossing what's happening is disorienting. Jesus' moments on the cross were incredibly disorienting. It makes so much sense that Jesus would call attention to a psalm of lament in Psalm 22. And so we're going we're gonna to walk through that psalm this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about it and uh, how it connects to Jesus on the cross. Jesus who became fully human, able to suffer physical pain, emotional anguish, able to fully understand the abandonment of all of the people in his life. Jesus in that moment experienced excruciating pain, and it was my pain that he was experiencing. It was your pain that he was taking for you. Brian Zond um, says this about the cross. At the cross we see where Adam and Eve's penchant for blame and Cain's capacity for killing have led us to the murder of God. This is where our sins led to an innocent God, our creator on the cross, and we killed him. See, Jesus hung from the cross in place of you and I. He paid the price that had to be paid in order that um, he had to be the sacrifice. Someone had to be that sacrifice. And so Jesus stood in our place and he became that sacrifice. Logic would go this way. God abhors sin. He hates it. it. It is the thing that hurts him, causes him pain, anguish, suffering the most. God does not like sin. And in that moment on the cross, Jesus had the collective sins of all of mankind, all of time, from genocide to homicide, lying to cheating, war and abuse, jealousy to individualism, all of that weight of the sin was on Jesus' shoulder, shoulders. And so in that moment on the cross, it would make complete logical sense that God, who hates sin, would have to separate himself from Jesus, who was in that moment sin. That makes sense to us. That makes sense as the logical path to take. And this logic is seemingly supported by Jesus' dying words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me? Why have you uh, separated yourself from me? I know, I don't know about you, but I know for me, I, I, I understand that. I jive with that line of logic. It makes sense to me. Um, I have, you know, I, I'm an American too. I grew up here experiencing Western logic and Western linear line of thinking. It's black and white. It's easy to swallow. God, Jesus, too much sin, has to be separated. That logic makes sense to me. But the problem with applying Western logic to the scriptures is that Jesus lived amongst the Hebrews. Jesus lived in a, a Hebraic culture, and the Hebraic culture was not Western. It was not linear at all. 
the Western uh, or the Hebraic culture was a culture of poetry. It was a cultural culture of the supernatural. It was nonlinear storytelling. That was the type of culture that Jesus was living in and amongst. And in that type of culture, one of the things that they were known to do, the Jews, and still today do, is they would reference uh, one or two lines out of a psalm in order to call attention to the psalm in its entirety. And any good Jewish boy or girl in the crowd would have known Psalm 22. It was a famous psalm they would have known, and they would have been able to recite that psalm in its entirety. Jesus' last words uh, on the cross, we believe at Restore, were drawing to attention all of Psalm 22, not just the beginning. And so today I want to walk through the rest of Psalm 22 with you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment on the cross, Jesus had been abandoned by all of humanity. No one was coming to his rescue. He was completely alone. So he cries out to God, why have you forsaken me? But that's not the end of Psalm 22. You see, the beautiful thing about Psalms of Lament is that at some point in the psalm, the psalmist takes a turn. And they go from a position of disorientation when everything is upside down and nothing makes sense, and they begin to turn a corner the corner towards reorientation, when they begin to see things clearly. And I, I don't know if that's ever happened to you before when you've been in a time of confusion and you start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, right? This is what the, is happening. The psalmist takes a turn in the middle of the lament. And for us in Psalm 22, it starts in verse 3. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you, they trusted and they were not disappointed. These are what uh, many refer to as the yet yous. Yet yous. These, this is when the psalmist takes the turn and begins to turn around the corner towards reorientation and begins to understand and be reminded of God and what God has done throughout time. As you read throughout Psalm 22, we're not going to read every verse of it today. I encourage you to go home and do that. But as you read through it, you, can, you watch the psalmist. It's like he's bipolar. He's, he's over here. God, why have you forsaken me? Why did you leave me? Yet you, God, were here and present. But God, there are people trying to kill me. Everything's terrible. Yet you, God, have done this for me. And he goes back and forth, back and forth as we watch the psalmist and disoriented, trying to figure out where God is in the midst of this. Then we get to Psalm 24. In, in the midst of this psalm, um, you can read through it later, it talks about the cross, and it talks about Jesus' anguish he endured on the cross. But then in verse 24, we see the psalmist make the turn completely. It says, For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one, Listen to this. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. As Jesus hung on the cross, he was calling attention to, to the entire psalm. And in the midst of this psalm, the psalmist comes to an understanding that God does not leave, and God does not separate himself. God does not abandon. My friend Curtis Brewer, uh, a, a preacher that I used to work with, um, he says this about the Psalms of Lament. He says when they're taken in their entirety, it's like planting seeds of hope in the soil of despair. Wow, isn't that, isn't that something that you want? Don't you want some hope in the midst of those terrible times? That's what the Psalm of Lament is. It, it is hope 
amongst the anguish and pain. And as disorienting as pain can be in our lives, whether it's self-inflicted, like the swimmers in Rio, or it was something that was completely out of your control, like a cancer diagnosis, or being struck by a car, or something like that, either way, God is there, and God is walking with you, whether or not you see him or not. And the beauty of the Psalm of the Lament is that it's in the midst of all of that disorientation and confusion being reminded that God is present and that God is with us and that he hasn't abandoned us. Psalms of Lament are meant to show us the path of a believer in times of anguish and how it leads back to hope. The hope of Jesus on the cross, it leads us back to that place. God doesn't forsake, he doesn't abandon, he doesn't leave behind or turn his back on his children. And God certainly did not turn his back on Jesus on the cross. I fully believe that. Scripture even supports that in multiple places throughout. I have a whole list. I won't read them all. Here's a few. Deuteronomy 4, 2 Chronicles 15, Psalm 37, more Psalms, Psalms. It's all throughout Scripture. And all of these, God very clearly says, I will not turn my back on the righteous. Jesus was the most innocent, perfect, pure, holy human ever on his, the face of the planet. If God says he won't turn his back on the righteous, how could he turn his back on Jesus, on his son? Wrestle with that for a minute. I believe that in the midst of our tragedy that God is present. He's not absent. He hasn't left or gone on vacation. He's present. He's there beside us. And I believe that the biggest way that God proved that is by showing up for humanity's greatest tragedy, the killing of our creator. And he showed up, not just as a spectator, but he showed up as the victim on behalf of the guilty. That's how he proved that he is present in our worst times. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, endured the cross for you and for me. And he did it so that in our worst moments, we would know in a very tangible way that God is with us. I believe that God sees our pain and his answer for our pleas um, for comfort. And, and as we ask and beg for rest, that God's answer is not a step-by-step plan. It's not to do's or to don'ts. God steps in and he gives us the cross. And that is the answer for our, our begging and pleading for comfort and rest. God draws near in our time of lament. I believe that's when he's the closest to humanity. I believe that's when you can experience God in the most raw and powerful ways is in your tough times. Uh, I know for me, um, a few years ago, my grandparents both passed away uh, in a matter of weeks from each other. Uh, my grandmother had cancer and, it, and she died pretty quickly. And then my grandfather um, died pretty shortly after that of, uh, of what the doctors called a broken heart, which is pretty cool. But um, in that time, there's a lot of funerals. There's a lot of time with family, and there's a lot of emotion, and I experienced a lot of that. Two of the people who are nearest and dearest to my heart, and I went through this lament, and I didn't even realize it until I was reading through this and watching Jesus' journey in that terrible time for him, and I went back, and I realized that I went through this. I, I experienced sorrow and grief. I even experienced guilt that I wasn't experiencing enough grief or crying enough, and then at a moment during one of the funerals, I remember just breaking down and completely losing it. 
and, and feeling disoriented, not knowing why is it that I feel this way? How come I can't control myself, right? How come I can't, you know, show my kids how to be strong in the midst of this? My boys were there with me. Um, and in that moment, I remember scripture being read. And that scripture, as it was read, I remember it refocusing me and bringing me back to remind me that God is present, that God is with me, and that God is there. And that was such a powerful thing that got me through that tough moment. And you know what? Your neighbors need that good news in their life. Maybe you need that good news in your life. Maybe you need someone to tell you that you are not alone. No matter how lonely you feel, no matter how tough of a time you're going through, you are not alone. C.S. Lewis says this, God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Think about it. When, when do people most frequently turn to God? During what times? When there's a need, right? When it seems that they've exhausted all other avenues of hope and everyone else has left them out to dry, then they will turn to God, right? I've been there before, right? That's when we turn to God, when we are in need. God is shouting to some of your neighbors right now. He's using that pain and he's trying to express to them that he is right there beside them. And they need someone like you to go and to walk through it with them and help them see that they are not alone, no matter how alone they feel. So what do we do? How do we be with people in those moments? This is such a tough question because there are so many answers and so many books. And our natural inclination as problem solvers is to fix it, right? And to spout off at the mouth and have some great advice or, or tell a story about what we went through. But what is truly needed in someone's darkest, deepest moment is to know they're not alone. And so you can go and you can be with them and just be present. Just listen. Just hold them. Just be available to them. In Romans 12, 16, Paul reminds Christians, those who choose to follow Christ, he reminds us, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. I believe that God has called us on into mission to go out and to be present and available in people's lives. Jesus did it. Jesus came and lived. He was homeless. He, he went, he spent all of his time with people, showing them his presence and showing them how he was there. Um, we need to be doing more of that. I love how it says at the end of that verse, live in harmony with one another. Harmony is a musical term, right? And harmony cannot be selfish. You can't have harmony by yourself. Harmony must be in concert with other voices and other instruments. Harmony must be giving fully of itself, but it's for the benefit of the group. That's what harmony is. And if you want to live in harmony with other people and you want to live in concert with other people, then you need to go and be present in their lives and you need to show them that you're willing to walk arm in arm with them and share more than just the celebration. You're going to be there even when the party's over. Ultimately, I believe that in our toughest times, we part of that disorientation is that we are having an identity crisis. And we don't really know who we are in that moment. And it's hard to, you're no longer strong, but you thought you were strong. You no longer have answers, but you've always had answers. And you really don't know who you are. And in that moment, you begin to wrestle with identity. One of the shapes that we talk about here at Restore is the semicircle. Just imagine it like a pendulum on a clock swinging back and forth. And it's an encouragement for us to, um, 
recognize and to live in balance in our relationship with God. So the semicircle uh, talks about on this side, we have our um, covenant side, our relationship with God in covenant as our father. He's our dad. So imagine God is your dad over here. And on the other side is God is our king. And this is the kingdom side of, of the work that we do in our lives. We need to be reminded of our identity as his children, that God is our father, that he's our daddy, and he wants you to come and sit on his lap. Think of what the best dad would do when you're going through a tough time. That's what, that's what God is. That's where he is in those moments. Your identity is in him, in being his child. It's not in your pain, and it's not in your sin. It's not, your, your identity is not cancer survivor. Your identity is not liar. Your identity is not a widow or abuse victim. Your identity is in God. That is where you find who you truly are. Our identity is, yes, part of our story is that suffering is, is in there. Suffering is going to be a part of humanity's life. But it's only the beginning. It's only a part of the story. The real core of the story comes in God's redemption and healing. That's where the identity comes from. Jesus gave us the best example of what it's like to live in relationship with God, what it's like to look at God as a father. And if you read the Gospels, I would encourage you to read uh, the book of John. As you read through it and you watch Jesus' life, you can see how he recognized Jesus as his dad and Jesus as his king. And, and how that goes back and forth and how there was balance found there. And he was illustrating that for us, showing us how as humans we need to live in that way. And as Jesus hangs on the cross in Psalm 22, he talks about both about how God is his father. In the beginning, as he's crying out, Dad, Dad, where are you? I need you in this moment. And as he wrestles through and through, uh, at the end of the psalm, uh, in verse 27, we read, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and he, the families of the nations, will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. For it is finished. As, as it was said on the cross, it is finished. Jesus, in the end of the psalm, recalls that God is seated on his throne. That God has not left, that he has not lost power or given up his seat, that God is there and that God is ruling and reigning and that he is in control and that he has not left us. God is our king, so we commit to following the, in the ways of his upside down kingdom. We commit to living as uh, servants of the most high king, to loving the immigrants and eating with the poor to living with our neighbors and hanging out with even the most unsavory of outcasts. That's what we commit to as followers of the king. Friends, it's, it's okay to be disoriented. That, that's a part of the human experience. That's a part of our lives. It's okay to be disoriented. That's a part of what we will experience. At some point, you'll feel helpless. You'll feel alone like God has left and gone on vacation. But remember... God is on his throne. He has not left you. He has not left your side. He has not abandoned you. Justice is coming. God is present.
The next time you're riding the rough waves of life and you're trying to figure out what's going on and you're disoriented and everything's upside down, pull out your Bible and read a psalm of lament. Read this one, Psalm 22, or, or find another one. A quick Google search will show you tons of them. Read a psalm of lament and follow the psalmist on this familiar journey of what it's like to be disoriented and then turn the corner to reorientation. And then be, ri- be reminded of God's steadfastness as your king and in your identity as his child. Let's pray. God, you are incredible. You are an incredible king.